So we're reading this morning um, from John 16, from verse 25 to 33, to the end of the chapter. Um, And as we read it, uh, there there are two ideas that are kind of intertwined uh, through this passage. I want you to look out for them as we we have the reading. Um, Of course, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his followers But he speaks to his followers about his father. So these are the two points. His father and and his followers. If you count, I think uh, he mentions father six times. And if you look at you or yours, about 11 times uh, in the section. So, verse uh, number 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. May God's word uh, touch our hearts. So in speaking to his followers, uh, he speaks to them about about the greatest subject of all when he speaks to them uh, about his father. Uh, In their difficulties, he's not giving them some kind of practical tips as how to to fix things. He's not asking them to to look inside to gain, what's the, the end phrase just now? Uh, psychological resilience. No, uh, he's, he's directing their attention uh, to his heavenly father, who is their heavenly father. Because hadn't he taught them um, in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, this is how you should pray, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Wouldn't he say to Mary after the resurrection, I'm about to ascend to, to my Father and, and your Father, to my God uh, and your God. And there are so many things that we could understand about the character and quality of God. And we need to learn to be still and to know God. We can learn about his sovereignty and power and so forth and so on. But perhaps the most precious aspect of all is to understand God as our heavenly father you know that was the point that that touched the heart of the prodigal son actually in Luke 15 the lost son 
you know, his world collapsing all around him, you know, and he says, you know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here with nothing. And uh, he comes to his senses and he realizes that my father's servants have enough and to spare. You know, I will now arise and I will go back to my father. I know my father waits for me. I know that he will welcome me. I know that he will restore me again. Take me back. And so we come to look at what this passage says about the teaching about the father. I'm just going to pick out four of them actually this morning. Um, The first of them is in verse uh, 25 um, where Christ said, "I, I will tell you plainly about the Father. I mean, as far as the disciples were concerned, the teaching of Christ up until this point was anything but plain. You know, figurative language was being used. They had great difficulty understanding what he was saying. You know, if you go back to verses 16 through to 19, as an example of that, when Jesus says, in a little while you're not going to see me, and then in a little while you are going to see me, and they're thinking, well, what does all this mean? You know, well, I mean, what it does mean actually is it refers to the death, you won't see me, and then the resurrection, you will see me, uh, of Christ. And I guess the point is that with the coming of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and the rest of the Scriptures to help us, we, we do have insight uh, that they don't have. But, but here at this stage, he says, you know, I want to make something absolutely plain so that you will not miss this at all. And it's this, it's the, it's the teaching about my father and, and your father. And of course we read, didn't we, these verses from Romans 8 at the start of the service, which make the, exactly the same point. Paul is saying to them, you know, you have not been given the spirit of, of bondage, the spirit of slavery, so that you will be afraid. But you have been given the spirit of adoption so that you can cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit of God witnesses with our spirit that we are the sons of God, the children of God. You know, and if, and if we are children, then we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. Now, that's what it means to have God as as our Father, that, you know, we we were orphans once. You know, we had nobody. And God chose to adopt us into his family and gave us all the status, the legal status, if you like, of what it means to be his son. And we're actually a joint heir with Christ. You know, being in Christ means that we cannot be closer to God than we are. Everything that Christ is to God, we we share in that as our tremendous inheritance. And what the Lord Jesus said, I want to make that crystal clear. I want to make this absolutely plain. Do not miss this point. God is your father. You are his child. And we must never lose sight of that. And the goodness of God. And that, that doesn't just mean that God has, has given us life. It means also that his care and his love and his guidance and his concern and his availability are always there on tap 
for his children, his dear children. And that is who we are if we have faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Of course, we know that not everyone is a child of God. That's a common fallacy in the world that we're all, was it Burns that said, Jock Tamson's Bairns? We're not, you know. We are not all in the family of God. We can't all say, my Father, if we don't have the life of God, which we only receive, we're only born again through trust in Christ uh, alone. But this tremendous privilege belongs to us. You remember the point when Jesus is speaking about prayer. You know, he says, ask, seek, knock. And he says to his disciples, you know, if your children were to come to you and ask for, for bread, are you going to give them a stone instead to chew on? Of course you're not. You know, how much more then shall your heavenly Father give good gifts to his children who ask of him? It's plain, it's clear, crystal clear. God is our Father. That is our wonderful relationship with him. But that's not all that's said here. The second one is down in verse number 27, where he says there, the Father himself loves you. I just want to pick out that little uh, emphasis word, himself. It doesn't just say the Father loves you. The Father himself loves you. You get an example of this in a few other scriptures as well. The road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Jesus himself drew near and walked with them. First Thessalonians 4, the coming of the Lord. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. It's put there for emphasis. There's no proxy here. There is, there is no alternative or substitute. It is the Father. You know, let's focus on it. Let's concentrate on it. That's the point of the word being in here. The Father himself loves you, he says to his followers, and, and he says to us this morning as well. And, you know, the point is this, that in the context of the verse, you can come to him directly. Did you see that kind of slightly unusual verse in verse 26? He says that, um, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. You know, the point that's being made there is, you know, the Father himself loves you. You can approach him directly. You can speak to him personally. Now, now the Lord Jesus is still our intercessor. John chapter 17 is an intercessory prayer of Jesus on behalf of his followers. But the the point that's being emphasized is you can come to him directly. Because the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and you have believed that I came from God. And so the great point for us always to hang on to, because it's something that invariably, during the difficulties of life, that we are tempted about, is the love of God for us. The love of our Heavenly Father. We need need never doubt this. We should always hang on to the wonderful truth that's being taught here. But there is a third one I'd like to uh, point out to you, and it's down in verse 28 this time. 
where the Lord Jesus says, I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. Now, this is a tremendously important point, actually, in understanding the relationship between the Father and the Son. And uh, it really gives insight into their their mutual love uh, for one another. He, He came from the Father, and he came into this dreadful world of corruption and deceit and terrible sin. As Philippians 2 puts it, he humbled himself, and he became a servant, and he became obedient unto death even the death uh, of the cross. And his great yearning during the years of his flesh, you know, these years when he was here, was that one day he would leave this world again and he would return to his Father. That's why Hebrews 12 puts it like this. Because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he despised its shame. And is set down at the right hand of the majesty in high. And you see this this idea of of the wonderful relationship between the Father and the Son. And so many examples in the Gospels. In the temple, age 12, speaking to the doctors of the law. Speaking to Mary and Joseph. Don't you know, I, I have to be about my Father's business. I need to be here to be busy in my father's business. He spoke to the crowds and his disciples and he said, you know, my father is always working and I am always working. I I always am doing the things that, that are pleasing to my father. Now, as an example, if you just look down to chapter 17, you'll see one or two examples of it there because when he begins to pray in verse 1, When he lifts up his eyes to heaven, he says, Father, the hour has come. Just look at a few things that give us insight into this relationship. Verse 3, I glorified you on the earth. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people. Verse 13, but now I'm coming to you. We don't often think about that. But this was his great ambition and yearning, that he would return to the Father. I am going to the Father. Now it's at this point that uh, the disciples say, Ah, now we understand. Uh, Now we believe. Now we get this, verse 29. But interestingly, rather than the Lord Jesus uh, being encouraged by that, He actually introduces a note of caution. And what he says is this. um, Do you really believe? That's That's the emphasis of it. Do you now believe? Do you really now believe? Question mark. You see you believe. It's all plain to you now. You understand. But do you believe? Because what's going to happen is... At the time of difficulty, when you're going to be called on to stand up for me, you will all be scattered. Scattered to your own homes. And the point he's making, of course, is 
You know, being a follower of Christ is so much more than the words that come out of our mouth. You know, no matter what we claim, you know, as far as our loyalty to Christ, the basis of that is is our action and our activity. And of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came for him with uh, lanterns and clubs and with torches, they, they all forsook him and fled, scattered to their own homes. You've got that picture of, of the young man, John Mark, in his terror, you know, fleeing naked from the scene. You've got Peter, who said that although everybody deserted you, I'll never do it, eventually denying with oaths and with curses. Do you really believe? What is belief? Belief is marked in actions. Now, it's not immediately apparent here, but there is an allusion made to an Old Testament quotation at this point where he uses the word scattered. You will be scattered. And you might want to turn your Bible up to Zechariah 13 at this point because it's a very key Old Testament messianic passage. And at Zechariah 13 and verse 7, God is speaking. And he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, authorized, who is my fellow. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And that's a prediction. Not just of the scattering of the disciples, but of what was going to happen to Christ upon the cross. The shepherd would be struck by the sword of Jehovah. It's almost as if, well, in fact, there is a hymn about this, isn't there? Jim will know it well. I've heard him giving it out a few times from the red hymn book, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. One of the verses says this, Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. And that Zechariah passage then is a masterful insight into not just the scattering of the disciples, but the striking of the shepherd by Jehovah's sword himself. So that is just for your insight there. So we come to the final point. And the final point is, uh, is down at uh, verse 32. I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Even although you desert me, The Father is with me. Even although Peter denies and John Mark runs naked and nobody else is around and he's arrested in Gethsemane and I stand apparently completely alone. I I am not alone. And you could follow that all the way through the trials of Christ. Even although he stood before Pilate, the Roman governor, And was absolutely in a physical sense alone with nobody around him. Or when he was brought out on the balcony before the masses. Behold your king dressed with the royal robe, the purple robe and the crown of thorns on his head. And there was nobody else to stand with him. He was not alone. And yet there was a point when he would be completely alone. Now... 
This idea of isolation, of course, is something that people are very well aware of at this particular time in, 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 in our country, in our world's history. And it's, it's good to get this point here. Um, scripture has an awful lot to say about loneliness. Ecclesiastes says, I saw something else that seemed to me to be absolutely meaningless under the sun. I saw a man that was all alone. You know, he had no one when he fell down that would help him up again. Or the Psalms, David describes himself on one occasion as, as being, like a, being like a sparrow on the rooftop. Or being like a pelican alone in the wilderness. Felt totally isolated and alone with nobody there for any encouragement at all. And there's so many other Old Testament examples of that. You remember Elijah felt that he was the only one left. And in the face of of the idol idol worship of, of the days of Ahab and Jezebel. The hordes of of Baal worshippers just uh, massed against him and he felt completely alone in the face of that and, and it brought him so much discouragement and despondency that at one point he asked that his, his life be taken away and he ran away from the fight until at the mouth of the cave at Horeb he heard the still small voice of God and realized that God was there and he was not alone Not in any sense was he alone. Or you remember how the Apostle Paul states it in his final letter, 2 Timothy. The the final chapter of his final letter. You know, when he writes to his young prodigy and he says to him, You know, Timothy, you know, Demas has left me. He's abandoned me. You know, uh, could could you come before, before winter? Bring my cloak bring the parchments Um, at at my first defense before Caesar nobody stood with me in fact he said on another occasion everybody in the province of Asia has deserted me irrespective of everything this man had done he stands alone in his defense before Caesar and yet he says but the Lord stood by me the Lord stood by me and I was delivered from the lion's mouth And that's the point that we need to hugely be encouraged with this morning in our present circumstances. This point that the Lord Jesus makes, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Although we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Thou art with me. That is the massive point that comes for our encouragement this morning. As we think about what Christ says here. But what this does do. Is it puts into sharp contrast. The point when Christ was truly alone. And perhaps when these words could not even be applied. Let's travel this morning again to Calvary. Let's focus our attention on the cross and on the hours of darkness to gain some sort of insight into what it really meant when there were these words of devastation. My God, why hast thou abandoned me? Now, there was never and has never been any 
experience of loneliness or isolation like Christ's when he was not just abandoned by followers and friends but abandoned by God and left completely alone to experience what it means to suffer God's wrath on account of sin. Such is his love. And that is where that Zechariah passage really comes into its own. The sword fell on the shepherd. The shepherd who was completely alone, who died for the sake of the sheep. Now the final point when he turns to his followers in the last verse is this. I have said these things to you, that in me me, you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And all that has been said this morning, it comes up to this point of conclusion. I've said all of these things to you, take them to heart. Mull them over, reflect on all of this, so that despite the tribulation that you undoubtedly are going to experience in this world, that in me you will have peace. You can have peace, which means, of course, no sense of loneliness, no sense of isolation from God, but nearness and togetherness with a heavenly Father who cares for us because the The shepherd was smitten and he experienced the loneliness of of Calvary. So take heart. Just to make a point that was previously stated away back in chapter 15, round about verses 18 through to 25, the hatred, the tribulation that the followers of Christ experience are because we are associated with him. If they hated me, They they will undoubtedly hate you. They hated me without a cause. There was no reason for it really. There's just a fundamental gut visceral opposition. And that is what we will sometimes experience. Tribulation from the world. But, But be of good cheer. Take heart. Be of courage. I have overcome the world. So we, we, we learn to look to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great overcomer, the great victor, who this morning is at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. So why can we take heart this morning? If our faith is placed in Christ. If we commit to him as his followers. If we experience God as our loving, personal, heavenly Father. So I hope these thoughts about about the Father have been an encouragement to all of us. They certainly were to me. Now, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, what what a wealth of truth there is just in that phrase as we utter it in your presence. For us to experience the sense of what it means of your care and concern that uh, you are ours and we are yours and you'll never leave us and you'll always guide and comfort. And so Lord, thank you that we can bring each other to you this morning and may your word and the reality of your presence and the, and the presence of Christ be a comfort to all who are here today. And we ask a blessing as we part in Jesus' name. Amen.